bum bum bottom 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 bum bum
biggest comic book giveaway. We brought like a short box full of Batman comics and it felt like, not that I don't think that more adults should be reading comics, but like with this film club, I want to create lifers. I want to create people who are going to want to buy single issues yeah, and for I, the next 50 years. I tailored the short box. like So I wanted to give a comic to everybody who came to the show, and we did that. We actually gave multiple comics to everybody who came to the show. But I tailored that short box to be like, there are some, you know, grim, dark Batman uh, comics in there. There were some teen plus comics in there. And then there were some all ages comics in there. And I, I didn't need to give away any of the all ages ones. And there's a, it's impossible to change a middle aged person's mind. Like if, if we hand someone a, a middle aged person a comic, if they're not already reading comics, it's going to take more than just like a, like a hair, here's something yeah, free I, I, yeah, to create I, someone. I, I hear you. I like, I do have the fantasy that even that middle aged person, Person, yeah, but it's a once fantasy. given the hand, once given the comic in the hand, might open that up and uh, discover something in it. I hear you just cut me off by saying, "Yeah, but it's a fantasy, Brad." The <laughs> word you used there was fantasy, and I hear you. But let me have that fantasy, and I do think that it must occur every now and again. You yeah. know, we have friends who started reading comics. Oh, I don't know, like Lisa on this podcast when they were in their 20s or older. Right, right. right. I recognize that I'm being a little bit of a troll by saying, like, <laughs> there's no point in giving comics away to anybody. You know, like, we want to give away comics. That is part of the point of what we're doing with the Alamo Draft House Winchester. But I'm just trying to drive this conversation car in the direction of, we need an all-ages Batman screening. Totally. Absolutely agree. That was the thing that we were really talking about driving home from the Winchester last night. It is weird to go to three Batman movies, and they are super scary at mm -hmm. times, very violent, and would make kids cry. And also are not fully committing to the whimsy that is inherent in Batman yeah, and I mean, Batman villains. They're Nolan's go Yeah, yeah. Nolan's going for a realism thing, right? Right. But I just feel like we've been chasing that for a while, you know, and we get the Matt Reeves Batman and it's like another like, oh, this is serious. We're telling serious comic book stories. And I miss some of that fantasy and whimsy that you're talking about that you find in the comics, that you find in the cartoons, that you see in like Batman the Animated Series. Mm -hmm. But even Batman the Animated Series, when we screened Mask of the Phantasm and we had more kids in attendance... Those kids that were there left crying. Yeah. I'll never forget that mom buying a Brave and the Bold copy from Four Color Fantasies and showing her little crying daughter, like, see, Batman's okay. Everything works out. Um, but, like, I want to recreate the magic that we had at our Mutant Mayhem screening, mm -hmm. where it mm -hmm. was full of kids who were crazy excited for the turtles and they had their own opinions about the turtles and they had their own costumes about the turtles and they wanted to share their thoughts about the turtles. Like, I want that for Batman. Yeah, and I, I think there is an appetite for uh, a younger skewing Batman story. I also think you could just do like a Goonies-esque all ages Batman story where a five-year-old can enjoy it and a 44-year-old can enjoy it. And we're not talking about like Lego Batman. Like no. we're not talking about a comedy. We're talking about something that is earnestly Batman, but still appropriate and accessible for all kinds of maturity levels. Yeah, I love Lego Batman. I love Batman the Brave and the Bold cartoon. In fact, that might be my favorite interpretation of a Batman comic, uh, the Brave and the Bold show. But I think we can get, you know, like when you read John and the Impossible Monsters or, um, you know, uh, Mark Wade and Chris Somney's Captain America run. Like mm -hmm. any kid could pick those books up. Any adult can pick those books up and just enjoy it. And there are so many good stories being told right now in 2023 in the all ages comic book market. Movies could learn something from those books. I think what makes a good YA comic is it is adventure over action. Like there's still action, but it, like it's not the driving force. The violence some... is not the driving force yeah, of the yeah. narrative. Punching's okay, but you know, talking about the scars in your mouth and putting knives in women's <laughs> mouths not not so much the plot is layered as in while you're reading the comic you are rewarded for paying attention and and gathering ideas and clues and like that kind of thing i you can probably see the direction i'm going in for my batman <laughs> film and then three there is a 
lesson wrapped into the narrative. There is an element of an, a morality tale as part of the, the YA idea. A couple of weeks ago when we had Christian Ward on the show talking about Batman City of Madness, he praised Batman as a flexible character. Mm -hmm. And his popularity allows him to last and be flexible. And we have seen so many different types of of Batman over the 80 plus years that he's existed, right? And right now on the stands, half of DC's slate are Batman comics. So Batman can afford many different tracks because many people will buy those tracks. And I think we just need a few more that are geared to all ages and a younger crowd. There's so much about Batman that is already so YA friendly. Just watching the Nolan films, they all have messages wrapped inside of them. I think a YA Batman comic or Batman film can just lean more into the detective side of things, more into like the, I'm observing, I'm gathering, I'm sneaking around in the shadows, foiling villains plots, and then like catching them in a net. Dropping a cage on top of them. Like, we do not need the hyper-violence. No, I think, I mean, really, honestly, that's all I'm speaking to is the intensity that we tell these Batman stories right now. Like, we just need to dial back a little bit and invite more people into the theater, like, to join the Batman narrative. It doesn't need to be animated. No. It doesn't need to be, like, Batman 66. No. It doesn't need to be wacky. I just need a PG Batman movie. And you need great style. You need a great script. You need great character, great performances. Have all those things. Just dial it back a little bit and invite some more folks into the audience. And we are talking additively. We are not talking about like, we need to take away the violence from Batman, because I do think that that is a rite of passage for certain readers to be able to cross into like the more darker, Batman, scarier Batman again, stories. Batman, is flexible, mm -hmm. and you can have an all-ages Batman movie the same summer you could have uh, you know, almost hard R Batman movie like The Dark Knight or Matt Reeves' The Batman. Both can exist, and I think both can sell tickets. Honestly, I really do. And I understand how we got here. You know, comic books starting in the 30s, basically, were a predominant children's delivery system for stories. And we grew up with those comics, and we became adults, and we were like, no, no, this stuff is a medium. It can tell any kind of story. This, this can be adult stuff, too. Batman doesn't have to be Adam West. Frank Miller comes along with Batman Year One, The Dark Knight Returns, and it's like, see... We can tell these adult ugh, Batman stories. And ever since those two books, we've kind of just been on that track with a few exceptions. And I just think we need more exceptions yes. to the children of Frank Miller. One clear exception to that is DC's YA line, like specifically YA comics. I think what they're doing in the Gotham space is like super fun and inventive. Nope. They seem to be stuck in those digest forms, and they're not like blossoming into the cinematic universe, and that's really what we're talking about. And speaking of stories, comic books that can teach lessons mm -hmm. and invite every kind of audience to the table, we are discussing Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees. Wait, wait, wait. Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees <laughs> is not all ages. <laughs> It is not for everyone. It's one of the most disturbing comics I've read in a long time. And I would never <laughs> give it to a child, even though there are elements of it that look like they're, they're straight out of a Richard Scarry mm -hmm. uh, story. Beneath the Trees is about this bear named Sam who owns a hardware store and she is a vital and visible member of her community but she just so happens to also be a super clean and efficient serial killer. Ooh, and yes. she does her killing mostly in the big city nearby. And then beneath the trees is where she's hiding the bodies. Patrick Horvath obviously is inspired by the classic tune, The Teddy Bear's Picnic. And I don't know about you, listener, but I encountered that song in childhood and I knew right when I heard it that it was sinister. And what 
Patrick Horvath is doing is really just taking advantage of that sinister feeling and pushing it as far as he can go. Dun 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 dun. Is this minor? Dun 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 dun. Oh my God, it's major. Even like music theory wise, it's like I don't know how to feel about this. I'm uncomfortable. And for a little kid growing up with anxiety, that was a very familiar feeling to me. Because when you're a kid, you are receiving warnings all of the time. Don't talk to strangers. Don't leave the yard. Don't turn to certain channels on the television because something's gonna happen and we can't tell you what it is. For me, Patrick is plugging into something so fundamental. It just lights up my brain like a Christmas tree. This idea that you talked to him a little bit about in the conversation, that your parents would tell you not to do these things, but they wouldn't tell you necessarily why. And then the things that you imagine are the why are so, so much worse probably ah. than some of the warnings. Not, not all. I all. mean... I would imagine some really heinous things. You know, I remember like the, I, like I grew up in the stranger danger era mm -hmm. and John Walsh and what happened to his poor son, Adam. I knew something had happened, but I didn't know what, and you're right. Like I would imagine really terrible things. I would then grow up and learn what happened to Adam Walsh. And, and it it's is way really worse. terrible things. It's yeah, way worse. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like that is the um, cloud, the murky, paranoia and dread that Patrick Horvath is exploring with Beneath the Trees where nobody sees. But like, to me, it's like comforting because it is set in this very like, for me, like as a Gilly, as a Gilmore Girls fan, <laughs> like it's a, like a very stars hollow setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a small town, should be very safe. It feels like a children's book. It yes. does feel like Richard Scary, but there is terrible things happening in there and I get to see exactly what they are. And I'm like, I was right the whole Time. Yes, yes. I, I, I hear but I hear what you're saying. Like it there the reason this comic works so well is because Patrick Horvath can pull off the Richard Scary with the Dexter, right? Like both elements are so well executed, and when they clash together, it creates this other sensation that for me is horribly disturbing, but in the most exciting way possible. Most of this first issue is dedicated to seeing how Sam gets away with being a murderer what, and also getting introduced to this like small town's worth of colorful characters. But then in the last two pages, it takes a hard left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I was fully satisfied with Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees Number One as just a one-shot. Right. And then those last two pages happen, you're like, oh, no, 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 there is a much bigger narrative going on. I am clawing through time to make this second issue come sooner. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the experience of re reading Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees, like, sparked in me a craving for other kinds of tales like mm. this one mm -hmm. and made me go to my shelves and consider what books really pair well with this one. And on that note, we need to get to our new segment. Referrals! Sponsored by Omnibus. Omnibus is a modern digital comic book store and reader app carrying your favorite single issues, volumes, and omnibuses all day and date, just like your local comic book store, you pay per book, but digitally. Their focus is on building an excellent customer shopping and reading experience and using novel discovery features to help fans find their next favorite book. They feature top tier content and already have many of the top publishers in comics today. In the spirit of helping people find their next new favorite book, we're launching a new referrals program. This is our third episode doing it. Yes. <laughs> I, when, when are we going to drop this paragraph out of our copy? I'm not sure. Sponsored by Omnibus in every comic book couples counseling episode. The idea is to give our counselees, that's you guys, further reading on the themes of the episode. Think of it as us sending you to specialists to further your healing journey through comics. Lisa, usually you start things off with your referral, but can we like 
change things up since this is our third time sure doing this. why would we commit so soon to like a set <laughs> equation for getting these done honestly i'm just excited to talk about this comic book again i feel like i am the champion for love everlasting by tom king and elsa chartier we had them on the podcast a year ago talking about the book and since then it has developed into something that i don't think i was even really prepared for but I don't want to talk about necessarily where it goes. I want to talk about where it starts and how it reminds me of Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees. In the first volume of Love Everlasting, we meet Joan Peterson and she knows that she is living in the romance genre, specifically the way that we see the romance genre in comics of the 50s and 60s. But every time she falls in love, once she says the magic words to whatever object of affection is that month, a cowboy appears and blows her brains out. Mm -hmm. So there are rules that she has to follow or rules that she has to avoid to survive this experience. And you as the reader might not be a genre tripping ingenue <laughs> or a serial killing bear, but you know what it feels like to have your routine upset and how unmooring it can feel for someone to mess with the way, with what you cling to yeah. to function. So that's what I'm, I really wanted to zero in on in bringing Love Everlasting next to Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees. Like both are playing with genre, mm -hmm. right? Both are mashing genres together. Uh, horror plays a part in both books. Uh, in Love Everlasting's uh, uh, story, horror is invading the romance genres and in Beneath the Trees where nobody sees horror is entering into rich and scary land. And it's in that collision where you feel so uncomfortable and both Sam and Joan are struggling with that sense of like, ah, oh, the, the, the world around me is not behaving the way I need it to behave. And what do you do when your environment turns against you? That's a good one. And while both books look nothing like each other, they're both wonderfully, expertly illustrated. Mm -hmm. These are some of my favorite looking comics of recent years. Now, I do worry that both of them are not necessarily for every comics reader. Like, I think both of these stories have elements in them that will inherently push people away, kind of like certain Batman movies might do. But that's also okay, right? Right, right? like, the audience that this comic is for and the audience that Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees is for are going to fall real hard for both of them. Okay, it's my turn, and that is going to be a tough book to follow, but I, th I think I've done it. Not that this is a competition, but this is a competition. <laughs> sounds like a competition. I based my choice on literally like two pages of Beneath the Trees when Sam is in the woods burying mm. her victim, mm. and then like a regular bear, a bear of the woods, just walks by. And I think a lot of times anthropomorphism is used in stories to create some kind of emotional distance for hard topics. But I think in a way, at least for me, it has the opposite effect, where instead of feeling more distant from the story because the animals are anthropomorphized, instead, I start feeling more like an animal. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I yeah, like yeah, that yeah. <laughs> Patrick just walks right into that feeling. Yeah, and we, we, we're we going to talk to him specifically about that scene in this conversation. Exactly. So, so my story that I picked off of Omnibus is one that challenges the way we think about the personhood of animals. Mm. So my choice is... Primordial oh. by Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. And I know my last choice was Tenement and I seem like <laughs> such a stan right now, but like once, once this idea struck me, I could not pick anything else. This is a great pick. It didn't occur to me at all, but now that you have said it, oh my goodness, I'm kind of jealous. I love Primordial and I love Primordial for the reasons you're saying. So for those of you who might not be familiar, Primordial takes place in the space race 
when we were sending animals into space like Laika, and then we, we sent monkeys and things like that to space. And so this is, what if those animals did not just die, but were taken to this other place? And then what if then they returned back to Earth? And it just has you thinking like, what is the internal life of a dog really like? And what is the internal life of a monkey, of an ape that's been experimented on really like? Yeah, and how far away from their experience is your experience? Are they people? Are they people whom we haven't figured out how to communicate with? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, 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 wonderful pick. I love Primordial. Uh, Jeff Lemire, Andrea Sorrentino. I mean, you know, uh, you're going through a phase right now. You're, you're like <laughs> ripping through all their books and uh, for good reason, because they make great comics. And as you said, Primordial is available waiting for you right now on Omnibus. So is Love Everlasting. Head on over to their digital comic book store, browse around there's a link in the show notes and yeah go shopping that's what's great about omnibus is it really does feel like a store they've set up the shelves go check out those shelves in our culture of streaming services and the feeling of entitlement to all art we're at a place where we need to reconnect to the idea of you want a book you buy the book. The single comic is valuable mm -hmm. and you don't spend $9.99 and get to go running through Barnes Noble and just tearing the place <laughs> apart, right? Like Barnes Noble's not your Netflix. Uh, digital comic book shops should not be your Netflix, right? Like it's a store. Right. It's red. That's what I love about it. Yeah. And then you get your little collection that you get to look at and you go like, I picked these. What impeccable taste I have. And on that note of impeccable taste, let's get back to Patrick Horvath talking about Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees, out from IDW Publishing on October 18th. I love Patrick. I know he's a listener. He, he might be listening. He's probably listening to this conversation right now. I and, hope we did okay by him. And we've been plugging this episode for weeks oh, yeah. and we've been pronouncing his name wrong. <laughs> I just moved the R, like when I initially typed his name into my notes and we copy and paste from one notes to the next notes, I just switched the R around. And so I've been saying, Patrick, oh, how have I been saying? I've been saying Patrick Hovarth, and it's actually Patrick Horvath. Or is it Horvath? Or is it Orvath? I, you know, Patrick, I'm sorry. We should have asked you while we were doing the interview, hey, how do you pronounce your last name? But luckily, we had such a great conversation with him that we are going to be on first name basis whenever we see him, and we'll just call him Patrick. As we do when he joins the Love Nest Zoom room right now. Patrick, welcome to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. We are so excited to talk about Beneath the Trees. We loved it. And I want to start with, I used to work at a pre-K through eighth elementary school. And okay. the teddy bears picnic day was like an extremely <laughs> special day. All of the kids would bring, would get to come in their pajamas and bring their teddy bears. And of course there would be the singing of that song. Yeah, yeah And yeah. it was a very sweet and not at all menacing event. <laughs> um, so I want to know how long has this song been festering in your life? When did it bring forth into this murder mystery? Um, so it... The first time I'd heard the song, the Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees, always seemed sinister, like from mm -hmm. the get-go. I always right. thought it was, and I came to that song way later in life. So I was oh, definitely okay. an adult, I think, the first time I'd heard it. And so <laughs> so when I'd heard that, I was like, what, <laughs> what is it? What is that? What, nobody, what is it that nobody sees? Like, what do they do? And then, um, and then along maybe like five years ago or so, I had drawn this this bear this like anthropomorphic bear walking along with like bloody axe mm -hmm. and it was just a thing to draw and i thought it would be funny <laughs> and the two like immediately combined um in my head and so that's sort of so it's been it's been a while <laughs> that song especially when you watch like the animated version of it like the classic cartoon version of that song i am sure that i encountered it in my youth but i had not revisited it in a long time until we finished issue one mm -hmm. of your book and then when you revisit that song like you're saying <laughs> it is demented it's you not 
melodically it's like weird it starts yeah. in like is this dorian mode is this d minor <laughs> oh it's f major i don't feel safe uh, and it's and, and yes and it's not just like well what are they doing the the narrate the singer of the song is going like watch out yeah exactly you know, don't you're, go you're to the forest to yeah, yeah yeah you're not allowed you're not allowed to go there and see what they do <laughs> and i am compelled to like really dig into the origin of that song i don't know if you've you've <laughs> dug into the origin of it but i need i need to know more it's definitely older and there's a bunch of older recordings of it um so i mean it, it's got a long long history and i also feel like a lot of the early uh, versions of that song just have a because they're so old sounding and there's just like pet patina sort of to the audio quality that you're like it just feels sinister <laughs> like so it's I don't know it's um it sort of has like a haunted toy quality or something and I knew what I was getting into when reading your issue because I've the, the cover is so evocative like immediately <laughs> it's that clash of cute and terrifying salty sweet but then yep. i'm reading the comic and as you're flipping through the early stages of that story and we get to you know what sam the bear is up to uh, it's i mean it's a full-on horror comic it's extremely sure, graphic yeah. it's yeah. extremely upsetting and i'm wondering when you are finally executing those pages those panels is there a glee like, is there a delight <laughs> that you are taking in the execution of that first execution? Um, it's um, yes, but only in the sense of it. I don't know. It's it's funny because I don't. I have a long history of just working in horror stuff, mm -hmm. um, and so I'm obviously very drawn to it. Uh, when you get into when you get into you know, violence and gore and um, everything that sort of marks a horror film, a lot of that stuff on its face value isn't necessarily appealing to me so much as the context for it and the issues it's sort of talking about. And so like when I get to this, mo like the big moment in issue one where Sam's doing what she does, I feel like it's um, it's it is I do. There is glee. Um, and a lot of that, too, is sort of the. It's weird because as an artist, you end up really inhabiting sort of the the mind of the characters you're drawing just from like an acting sort of standpoint uh, as you're trying to get the performance right on the page. Right. And so like you're getting into this mindset, which is weird. It's a weird place to be. Um, but uh, but I really wanted to get into that that sort of ecstasy of of her doing exactly what she wants to do. Uh, and it's like and it's very upsetting and it's and it's uh, and the violence is also, I think, partially very upsetting because it's so cold and mm -hmm. just very calculated. Um, and so, yeah, when I get into that, the the, you know, depicting it is it's like incredibly interesting to me also because it is such a hard turn, uh, given the context of this cute world that we're sort of diving into um, and and. Yeah, as it's come as it came together, I was very pleased with it. <laughs> with, yeah, with the, the level of of you know of, of the gore slash you know, um, I, I wouldn't even say like the level of it, but the, how grounded it kind of feels, right. given that it's so fanciful or whimsical. And uh, the art style for those of you who who perhaps are listening in the car and haven't seen the art for this episode, it isn't like Richard Gory. It's like it's like Busy Town. Like it's like yeah. very sweet very cute uh, like did you have uh children's books or kid lit illustration in the back of your mind that was inspiring the setting yeah definitely i mean the richard scary stuff was for sure a huge influence i like um, how lisa's called it richard gory yeah no oh you did. Uh, what's richard gory's first name? No, ri you're thinking edward gory richard scary so i've mashed them up <laughs> but i mean it's not edward gory like he's like you're not giving something that is creepy on its face Right, right, right. It's definitely, it's definitely um, more in Richard Scary Town for sure. And I think, I mean, the it that was a huge inspiration. I because I mean, like the Richard Scary depiction is like even more. It's way more uh, uh, kid kid lit friendly. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and the depictions are sort of like <laughs> their faces. I love their faces. And I and for a split second was like, do I try and render them just like a little more like a little more cutesy, a little more naive or something? And um, and ultimately it didn't. But the but the setting of the Richard Scary like a lot of his busy town stuff feels like post World War Two like idyllic small town. You know, um, everybody has a place to fit into. Uh, and I think that was a huge inspiration in terms of conceptualizing like Woodbrook, the town, um, mm. and the characters that sat in it. Uh, and then, and then I definitely, I mean, some of the rendering and stuff is, you know, it's more involved than that, but it's, um, but it's still like, that was a huge inspiration for sure. What were you, were you a creepy kid? Like as a child, <laughs> as a child, d- did you, did you also see kind of the dark side of things? Sure. I mean, a lot of the stuff uh, that I grew up with was um, a lot of Roald Dahl, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of British stuff, uh, thanks to my folks. But and I grew up in like, you know, Burlington, Iowa. So um, it was a pretty uh, it was a pretty mm, I want to say like bland, but like there wasn't a lot of like immediate inspiration for stuff around. Um, but and I was definitely drawn to stuff that was not the common thing that a lot of my you know fellow kids at school would be into um but like i was for sure drawn to like a lot of the darker stuff a lot more interesting to me um it was just a lot more compelling because i remember like i i i was one of those like idyllic children we're like oh the world is magical and everything is fine and safe and then like third grade was like when the anxiety set in and because you were constantly being warned not to do things right. and i grew up like in the, the 80s where stranger danger was like a huge oh yeah thing. yeah definitely like, yes oh, what's the stranger gonna even do to yes. you like and so getting all of those warnings with like zero context like that is the fear that i feel like beneath the trees plugs into where mm-hmm. where you're you're being sold this like the world is the safe and beautiful place but don't go in the woods alone or, yeah. and that's why we like manifest, oh, there must be a monster underneath my bed because people are warning me like the world is not a safe place. And yeah. why? Yeah. 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 I think the stranger danger is an excellent um, concept to bring up to in terms of like what this is sort of tapping into. And it's even like more sinister than that because it's like, these are the, the conceit is that like Sam is just a member of the community that people have known for decades and decades. And they have no idea like mm-hmm. this sort of monstrous side of her. Um, and so it's like even worse than stranger danger because like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, but, but that, that idea of like, uh, that there, there is this sort of sinister thing, this element, right. Um, that anybody could sort of fall victim to if you're not vigilant Um is also sort of like so abstract, I think, to a lot of the folks in this town that there's they're completely just not it's not even on their radar. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, versus like the city as as a, you know something to contrast against. Um, and then the way that Sam Sam's aware of all of that and for sure has rules that yeah. they fought they must follow to do what they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to me, when I'm reading the comic what is great about it is that you have a deep understanding of both tones and both worlds that you're exploring and we've touched a little bit on you know the things that you're referencing children's book wide wise kid lit wise but on the serial killer side what's the inspiration how does sam become this type of serial killer yeah the um it there's no like one referent that I've had that was that was like a guiding star but the um it was sort of a an amalgam of a lot of different research into serial killers and I was trying to just piece together like what is the profile of Sam that's driving her to do what she does um in the very specific way that she does it and uh and I kind of just pulled different elements of of these like various psych profiles from serial killers that I would read in different books. Um, it was definitely, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a very dark <laughs> research sure. period. I don't recommend like well, diving into Lisa uh, and I uh, have discovered since 
lockdown, we've become like true crime junkies and we feel yeah, very sure. weird about it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. This is voyeuristic. It's voyeuristic. Yeah. It's exploitative. Uh, mm-hmm. These are real people's stories and they're yeah. awful. And here I am, you know, eating my dinner to their Netflix program. <laughs> um, and, and, and there, there's just something inherently compelling about that. And I do yeah. wonder if it's, it actually extends from my 80s childhood of stranger danger where i was told there was all these dangerous things as a kid but they weren't no specifics were ever given and so now i'm just deeply interested in the specifics oh absolutely i think that's part of it um i would also imagine it has a huge component of you just being like would i would I fall victim to that? Sure. Like, would I yeah. be savvy enough to see what happened or like see everything leading up to me all of a sudden being, you know, caught like checkmated by this person or like what, you know, or would I just completely be another victim? Could I escape? Like there's so like, what is it that they do? Are there chances to like get out of this? Like there's so many different things that I feel like you're drawn to with true crime. And I, and it's, you know, and it's same, I have the same conflict that you just mentioned as well, where you're just like, I don't feel cool consuming this as a person. So like, it, you know, it does feel, it feels icky. And at the same time, like very weirdly necessary. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Compulsive. Like uh, Sam's victim that we see in this first issue. Like I would totally fall for it. Of course. Yeah. I'm a nice oh, God. person. I, the Ted Bundy move. And I yes. would completely, I would too. And yeah. I'd be like, oh, we can get you up and running no time. Like, I, I feel like, you know, to to see someone in distress who has like a simple request of like, can you help me out? I would 100 percent. I think yeah. that is part of the reason why I put it. I decided to go with that. And it's also so. Uh, it's just so cold blooded to prey on someone's kindness. That was another reason why I wanted to put it in mm-hmm. specifically to just highlight I mean, the thing is, is that like I feel with getting into Sam and you see throughout issue one for sure is there's no that connection, that humanity connection is just completely void. Mm-hmm. And um, and all of all it's all just like it's, you know, it's her uh, just computing what needs to happen to make it to make things go. And mm-hmm. she's totally, you know, willing to to exploit every sort of you know emotional manipulation etc so what gets me really excited also about beneath the trees is that it is a serialized mystery and i'm a person who loves like plots and schemes like i love to be rewarded for being like a good and observant reader where Mm -hmm. i'm like oh i'm i too am gathering clues you know what (laughs) i mean um so how was it composing this mystery did i did you start from the and then kind of work backwards or you just or did you let it happen a little bit more organically? I definitely uh, started from the end and work backwards. Mm, I can't do the other. I've done the organic method and it's completely um, it is like a 20 percent success rate for me. Uh, or it just takes forever to go around the world and come back to being like, you know what, this whole chunk that I sort of had to work through to get to this little golden tidbit at the end was a long way to get to, I wish I would have just started with the tidbit and then like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, um, and I, I mean, that's something I've found just from the creative process over the past like couple decades of doing film work and whatever. And screenwriting and you just the way that my and other people are are excellent at doing uh you know the organic method of just working through and letting themselves discover the story and that's that's great um but i and especially with this where you had i knew essentially what the what the end result needed to be and so i it was much easier for me to just like figure out all those points and then start to work backwards to figure out the best way to tell that story so i'm reading the comic and i'm loving the comic and i'm going you know the comic as it exists for the first 18 pages super compelling i could read an entire series just going in this one direction and without spoiling things in the last few pages something happens that upends 
the story and mm-hmm. turns it into something a little different. And since you work backwards, obviously you knew early on in the storytelling that you were going to change directions in the first issue. And this is what the bulk of the story is going to be, presumably. Yeah, definitely. But you take a voyeuristic thing and you turn it into a true thriller. Like we're no longer just like uh, seeing what goes on beneath the trees where nobody sees. Now it's like. It's not beneath the trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's out from underneath the trees. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, yeah. The I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Brad. So what is the what's the main what is the question? That is how it always goes on comic book couples counseling. So what's the question, Brad? The 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 question is why the thriller? Why did why Why take it this way? Why take it this direction as opposed to keep it with like a more of like a dextery, like we just kind of see the things that go on? Yeah, yeah. right. Um, oh, I, I mean essentially I think I wanted to have a universal hook for the whole thrust of the comic. And obviously, when you have like a psychopath serial killer who's, you know, murdering these really cute animals in cold blood, like I feel like that's a that it can be compelling, but I feel like there's a way to make it more um, emotionally grounded with an audience. And it was to give Sam a total existential upending and to make it some whatever she had been doing and has been doing for decades is all of a sudden under under threat. And it's immediately something I felt that anyone could relate to um, in terms of, you know, having whatever they thought was their thing, whatever they do to be totally, you know, uh, uh, threatened with possible, you know, life shattering repercussions. Right. So like the genius thing for me is how it then plays with empathy. Sure. And, you know, you have feelings about this character for 18 pages and then you introduce this other element and it's going to um, not just upend her life, but the way I perceive everything and how I observe her. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, her status has been unquote and nobody wants that shit. Like everybody yeah. wants like th- they already have their plan of the way their life is going to go and everything is in place. And you're like, OK this till the end and then of course something comes along and goes like oh no somebody is upsetting like my plan is ruined by someone being you know chaotic and and less rational than me it's a hundred percent the introduction of chaos especially with sam's very or and as 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 wild and violent i guess as her as her secret life is it's also like very ordered Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge component. And then to have this chaotic element show up that's going to threaten everything is definitely like the the very it's very upsetting. <laughs> like it, it's it, it's the ending is very upsetting for the whole town of mm-hmm. issue one, obviously. And it's upsetting yeah. for Sam, but in a completely different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and um that that part of me who was trying to weasel into what your emotional experience was while you were creating it is really mm-hmm. just me projecting how I felt while I was reading it, where I get to these moments. I'm like, this is so demented and I'm kind of giggling and feeling bad that I'm giggling. Yes. But then you get to that <laughs> last page and, you know, it's like, it got a big laugh out of me. And then the laugh stops and then you just focus in on <laughs> Sam's expression and whoa. Oh, so much. It's so good. Thank you so much. I'm so glad it landed so well with y'all. So the part that has me really intrigued, it just like as like a little like brain worm, was the introduction of Mother Nature. Yeah. And to yes. For, um, yes. For Sam to go into the forest, and in the forest, there are animals that yeah. are not wearing clothes yeah. and are Thank not you so much upright. for bringing this up yeah so could you speak to the inspiration of including mother nature in this yeah. story yes so um so nobody's brought this up yet and i'm very curious because other people i've talked to that have read it have been like this the part with her in the forest when she has the moment with the bear is very it really it stuck with me like after reading it mm-hmm. and um and i was like oh good and i've gotten that response a lot and uh, but nobody's brought it up yet. So I'm thank you for bringing it up. Um, it's definitely and it, this whole element plays out throughout. So oh, hell yes. Um, so the idea of just having animals in the anthropomorphic animal world was was 
um, very exciting to me. And again, was like a Richard Scarry inspiration because he has it in his books. And what's even more is, and it gets, you'll get into this more too, but he has like these very, like, if you even think for like a minute about some of the elements he has in there, they're very problematic. And like, for instance, like the butcher shop that Sam goes into, like in the yeah. first page or whatever, it's, um, that was a complete Richard Scarry inspiration. Cause he has, I think it's, it's one of the busy town book covers and he just has like this butcher shop and it's like, yeah. a pig, <laughs> it's like a pig running the butcher shop. Yeah. And you're like, what is going on? And there's like sausage links and stuff. And you're just like, what is happening? Like, what, what is this world? And so like the idea of just, uh, it just completely inspired me to just start thinking about like, what is the what is the connection that these animal people have with these animals that they've obviously like you start like okay so you're gonna make a comic about anthropomorphic animals so you have like a really broad space to work in right um one of the big things for me was just like the world building and like what is it exactly that it carries over from our world as a corollary to this world and like how far do we want to go with it like are they going to do like pop culture references are you going to do religious stuff like what and in, in what way does this show up? You know what I mean? Like, is it skewed? Like, and it, to me, there's definitely a lot of crossover, but it's all very skewed. And so, like, there's obviously like an evolutionary element to these people, right? Right. <laughs> that, that live. And so there's a connection to these animals that's like way stronger. And it, I mean, and it's funny, too, because like the human embryo goes through all these different stages when it grows, you know, and becomes a human form from the zygote. And so like it crosses through all these different, you know, different stages that are also the same as other animals. Right. So like. <laughs> sorry i'm going on this tangent no this, no, is, no, this, no, yeah. this is what i want yes. yeah so anyway so the uh so to me like it was very very important to have these moments um and just to plug it in like almost in the middle of the first issue of sam coming face to face with like her sort of you know evolutionary corollary of just like having like this bear moment uh and and for the first time like not even doing it uh consciously but possibly subconsciously starting to to consider that to consider herself uh and kind of where she fits into that because it's and to me and this is totally like so you just brush over and think it's a funny moment in the book but like to me like it's the first moment where seeds planted of um uh that where sam is actually starting to question her own self Mm -hmm. And I feel like Sam, without spelling all this out, because I didn't want to, I don't know, I feel weird about spelling stuff out for readers, but like to myself, like Sam's like gotten to the point where she's at um, just by virtue of her being very smart and then also being a, uh, completely immoral. And so she's sort of never questioned like why it is she, that she, she just knows what she wants to do and has essentially manufactured this whole life in a, a you know, very naive small town where she won't be bothered. Um, and then to have this moment with the bear, which is arguably like in mother nature, uh, you know, because there are, there are other elements to it as well, but like to have that moment at her being her true self, um, but still not quite realizing like what it is that she's doing, <laughs> like the sheer, just strange surrealness of what it is she's doing in the middle of the woods, being witnessed by this very, natural order is is totally like at the heart of i think what you know this existential upending is <laughs> well like for me like just having that like little moment go makes me go well i'm barely like me not being an animal is just a story that i'm telling myself you're barely sure. like we're so connected to the animals that we're eating right right like, right. and and what yes. i loved about this moment is by doing this, by having, you know, uh, an animal bear and a sentient or or a human I mean, anthropomorphized, anthropomorphized bear, by having those two things, you're just telling the reader, yo, <laughs> you're you're doing this already. You're having these moments all the time when you go out in nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I feel like and it's also like you mentioned, like the connection to the animals that we eat. Um, I feel like it's all just unquestioned yes. largely by so many people. And it's funny because like, I'm, uh, I do question that a lot. <laughs> so like, and it's informed my life over the past couple of decades, but like, it's, but it's totally an interesting, 
Um, it's an interesting thing that largely just goes unlooked. Mm -hmm. Because the second that you look, it, it's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it brings up a lot of issues. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> you like open up the closets in busy town. It's full of Woo. kids. It's scary yeah. in there. <laughs> oh, man. To see this moment with Sam and the bear in this comic, it reminds me every time I read uh, Usagi Ojimba, the Stan Sakai book. Lisa oh, and I are yeah. huge fans of it. And it's like the, the, the biology of that comic is so fascinating because you'll have you know the rabbit ronin you'll never see a bunny but you'll see horses you'll see snakes you'll see right. other types of creatures and you always wonder like well how did how did usagi get to right. this point but, like to me it's like even more creepy to not point at it and say that it's weird sure yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so like, reassuring that she, that like that you are pointing to it because i do i do see that scene and like i have this moment many times when i'm doing interviews is i i interpret something in the book and, and then the the person who made the book is like oh i never really thought about it that way like that happens <laughs> all of the time sure. and like so for me to go like I see this and I am unnerved. And for you to go like, you're correct. I'm just like, oh, thank God. Validation. <laughs> thank God. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was definitely, it's, it's, I mean, it's not the front and center element to the book, obviously, but right. I think it's like the, it's the quickest path to the heart of it for sure. Right. Well, you know, we've only read the first issue and now I'm like, I mean, I was eager before, but now I'm crazy eager to read the rest of this series. Uh, because, because I could, I could see, and you don't need to comment on this, but I could see this moment being a huge, not just emotional moment, maybe even not just a, a narrative moment, but like a thematic moment in the whole series. And I, it, it, you know, to use the person who brought it up to you, like it is a haunting moment that you do carry with you after you've already experienced all these horrible images in this book. It's that. Right. It's that moment that stands out. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely, yeah, it's, uh, and uh, yeah, this theme is most definitely embellished. So okay. um, yeah, you'll be seeing a lot more of it. These are the interviews that we also really hate doing because it's like one issue. I know. Yeah. Sorry. All of the I've gathered and I want you to just, I'm just going to look at your face. You don't have to say anything, but I'm going to know if I'm on to something. Well, Lisa and I did go through the cast uh, afterwards I and we were like, okay. all right, suspects. Let's go. Let's yeah, do this. Yeah. 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 And that's super fun. It's super fun. Patrick, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like us to cover? No. I mean, I feel like this has been great. Okay. Oh, all right excellent so yeah obviously patrick we're like crazy enthused by this series excellent and i'm so curious to see what the reaction to the series is going to be me too <laughs> i bet i bet there's like a lot of anxiety around that too how could there not be oh my god you're working this you know you're just sitting at the at this desk behind me you can see i got my desk right behind me as i'm speaking here and it's like that's where I sit by myself drawing a lot of this. And you're like, is this good or is this garbage? Or like, where is this? I don't know. I hope they like it. Well, two people like it for sure. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. He could still screw it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's oh, got yeah. so many issues ahead of him. Oh, my God. That is the ultimate mystery. But for those that want to uh, continue this conversation beyond uh, this conversation, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on, uh, on formerly known as Twitter at Patrick Horvath. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Catbird Planet. And, um, and that's probably the best two places to find me. Or I get you can find me on my website, just patrickhorvath.com. And find him in the comic book shop uh, and pick up the first issue of Beneath the Trees where nobody sees. Patrick, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. There you are. Once again, our thanks to Patrick Horvath for talking Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees, which is, once again, coming out from IDW Publishing on October 18th. I hope that this conversation convinced you to put it in your pull box. Maybe it's already in your pull box, but it is just such a fascinating narrative, but most importantly, being executed at the top tier. It's gorgeous. It's compelling. 
And it has that kind of momentum where you finish that first issue and you want the second issue immediately. I want to go back to the forest. I want to know who is the butcher hanging up in that shop window. These things have been worming around in the back of my mind since childhood. And the fact that he is kind of fulfilling that worry is like really, oof, it's delicious. So in the first issue, when we get that moment between Sam and the bear in the forest, that is like that that halts you in your reading experience. You're like, hold up, hold up, hold up. What and, kind of comic is this? And you, it's the kind of thing where you go like, is the story actually going to deliver on this moment? Right, or is which, it just like a wink to camera? Which is why we had to explore that with Patrick. And Patrick says, no, the comic is going to have more moments like that. We're going to explore what does that actually mean for Sam and the world around Sam. And that's that right now as exciting as the last two pages of the first issue are and the element that that introduces into the story it's that sam and the bear moment in the middle of the first issue that i really want to excavate mm -hmm. but beneath the trees where nobody sees is not the only thing that has us excited about the future we've got a <laughs> lot of cool stuff coming up uh yes so we're wrapping up hopefully as you're listening to this our lost weekend and fantastic fest experiences and that's going to lead almost immediately into the new york comic-con mm -hmm. and lisa and i are on two really incredible panels at new york comic-con this year the first one we're moderating and it's going to have Kevin Eastman and a bunch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle artists and writers on that panel. We can't say exactly who those people are yet, but by the time this episode's out, it's probably out there. So again, look at the links in the show notes, check out our social media page. But the panel itself is called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Next Mutation of Turtle Power from IDW Publishing. So speaking of IDW Publishing, Yes, we're at that mega panel at New York Comic Con. I'm super nervous about it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> but, yeah. But we're gonna we're gonna do a good job. We're gonna do our research. We're gonna do our homework. We're gonna be fine. It, it, it's such an honor. It's such an honor. I'm very very excited. Yes. And then we oh, oh I should probably say when that is. So that's on Saturday, October 14th at 10:45 a.m. in room 406.2. And then that same day, later in the evening at 6 o'clock at the River Pavilion, we are going to be on a panel called The Awesome Power of Comic Book Podcasts and How You Can Start One Yourself. We are doing that with our buds, Botter Milligan from the Short Box Podcast, Chris Hacker and Aaron Knowles from the Oblivion Bar Podcast, plus the good folks over at Previews World. So if you're coming to New York... Please come to both of those panels, and when you hear the words comic book couples counseling, give us a huge round of applause. <laughs> Show New York that we're a big deal. <laughs> yeah, even even if it, it, we need that little boost. Yeah, we need that little boost. We definitely need that little boost. <laughs> so we're very excited about that. On the podcast front, our next episode will be another creator conversation with David Dasmalchin talking about Count Crowley. We've had that chat already. It's a really fascinating deep dive into David Dasmalchin as a creator mm -hmm. and how he is all up inside the Count Crowley comic books. Yes. And then over on the Patreon feed, we have... Three Married to Singles episodes. These are episodes where we ask comic creators and comic fans to pick out their favorite single issue and dissect it with us. We launched it back in July with Daniel Warren Johnson talking about the nom number nine. Then we had Jason Ayers, the superstar WWE referee, talking about the Uncanny X-Men number 183. And our latest episode is Christian Ward going all the way through Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth. And that episode will really help you understand how he created his new comic book series, Batman City of Madness. And Brad, don't forget, also on the Patreon, we had a little visit from one Kevin Eastman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came on to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and how reinvention and remaking is inherent to the franchise. And we also talked about that radical ending of Mutant Mayhem and what he initially thought of that ending and how he got to his final feelings about that ending. Don't miss that chat in the Patreon. All of our Patreon episodes, we have hundreds of episodes, thousands of hours available to you for the low price of $1 a month or $12 a year. $1 a month. Like, best deal in comic book podcasting right there. 
Okay, Brad, I, I actually have to go to work. I'm leaving. Um, so I just want to leave you with this thought. If you go down in the woods today, uh -oh. you better not go alone. Okay. It's lovely down in the woods today, uh -huh. but safer to stay at home. Oh. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me at home. <laughs> on most social medias, at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott, at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm, at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send the words of affirmation? Uh, why can I not do that sentence anymore? <laughs> Lisa, where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. We're everywhere. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on all the socials at cbccpodcast. Check out our socials right now. Did we, in fact, just interview Malcolm McDowell? It might have happened. <laughs> You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We're fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Okay, Brad, it's time to end this episode. We have... We're in the past. We have two film festivals <laughs> still to go to. Oh, we got to pack. We got to pack. We got to pack. Laundry's uh, still not done. No, it's not. Um, let me leave you with this thought. If you go down to the woods today, you better not go alone. It's <laughs> lovely down in the woods today, but safer to stay at home. For every bear that ever there was, we'll gather there for certain because I can't do this outro. I get too tongue-tied. Uh-uh. Let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs>